This morning, as we jump into our study of God's Word, I hope you have your Bibles open to the book of Ephesians. It's been a few weeks since we have been in Ephesians. In fact, it was March 8th when we were last there. So I, as we re-engage with this book, want to sort of give us a recap of where we have been so it's sort of a platform to jump off in the weeks to come. We've entitled the series on Ephesians, Know Who You Are, because the book of Ephesians really helps Christians to deal with an identity crisis. As Christians, we're always struggling to know uh, who we are, and on any particular day or in any particular circumstance, who are we, and who do we belong to, and what does it matter? Well, the structure of the book of Ephesians helps to actually answer the question of who we are and also gives us a roadmap for how to live out the Christian life. Many people, perhaps you or people that you know, have had a church, of ex- have had a church experience where they really feel weighed down by a sense of obligations and burdens and duties. And some people have just gotten to the point where they're just like, I'm done with it. I can't meet the expectations. Uh, Perhaps you know someone like that. Well, the book of Ephesians, the way it's actually laid out, the structure of the book combats this idea that duty is the most important part of the Christian experience. Let me explain what I'm trying to say by that. There are six chapters in the book of Ephesians. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Uh, If you had to put one sentence to encompass what it's talking about, it is all that God has done for us in Christ. It's what God has done in the first three chapters. And it's only in the last three chapters, four, five, and six, where it begins to talk about how we are to live in response and relying upon all that God has done for us in Christ. So really the emphasis is on what God has done for us in Christ. Another way we see this is is really in the grammar of the book of Ephesians. In the first three chapters, the verbs are all in the indicative sense. And what what that means for you uh, non-grammar folks, which would be me, is that the indicative declares what is. It is what is, what has happened, what is true. Imperatives would be another verb tense of the Greek language, and the imperatives talk about what what is obligated and what is to be done, how we should act. And the imperatives actually come only in chapter 4. In all of the first three chapters, there's only one imperative given. But starting in chapter 4, there are 38 imperatives. So it is because of what God has done for us in Christ, now this is how we respond. So the book book of Ephesians, both um, in the way it's structured as well as in its grammar, helps us understand that this book, this Christian life, is about responding to God who has initiated the relationship with us in Christ. Now, the book of Ephesians is a letter written to people uh, who don't know uh, if they belong. And I'm going to talk about this in a moment, but uh, in early first century Ephesus, there was an identity crisis in the church. Do I really belong? 
And that's a question that I think through the centuries Christians have asked for a variety of reasons. Do I belong? Am I worthy? Are these my people? Do I belong here? So again, this will be a major theme that we want to address as we go through this study. Now, I want us to look a little bit at the historical setting of this book in order to give us a backdrop. Several things I want to note. First, the, the town, the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city in the Roman Empire that was flourishing in the first century. It, fun, it functioned as the economic hub. It was the New York City of the day uh, within that area. And that area in the New Testament terminology was referred to as Asia. Ephesus was a multicultural city. Uh, there were uh, people from different ethnic groups that lived in Ephesus. And as a result, there is a pluralism of thought uh, within this town. Now, uh, as a result of all this diversity around uh, uh, them, uh, tolerance was highlighted. In fact, in the Roman Empire, there was the idea of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It was uh, an ideal that they were to keep the peace, and so tolerance was emphasized. Another thing that uh, we should notice about the historical setting is that in Ephesus, the priority of worship uh, there was uh, a priority within worship, even within the pluralism. And the primary object of worship was Artemis. Uh, in, Rome, in the Roman pantheon of gods, this was Diana. She was premier as the chief goddess, at least from the Ephesian point of view. Ephesus was the home of the great temple of Artemis, uh, this temple was one of the seven great wonders of the world. Uh, it was constructed in 550 BC, and it was a massive structure. Uh, it was believed that a stone had actually fallen from heaven, and that stone actually was the statue of Artemis, which was in that temple. I encourage you to read in the book of Acts, uh, chapters 19 and 20 as a backdrop uh, to the devotion that the Ephesian people had to Artemis. Uh, another thing to note as we look at the book of Ephesians is to note uh, the author of this book, the Apostle Paul. Uh, we, we see in Acts chapter 19 and 20 that God had worked mightily in his ministry. He had spent three years ministering there Night and day, we're told in chapter, Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Uh, he had ministered in different settings. He had ministered in Jewish synagogues as well as in uh, the great rhetorical halls of Ephesus, the hall of Tyrannus. Now, he had spoken to large groups and he had spoken to small groups, house to house. And so his ministry was as diverse as the population. Uh, we're told that in his ministry, he declared the whole counsel of God and that he had declared all that was profitable to the Ephesians uh, and that all of Asia had heard the word of God as a result of his time there. So this was a uh, profoundly effective ministry that Paul had had. Now, as a result of his preaching ministry and people coming to faith in Christ, uh, what happened is that the prevailing 
tolerance, the philosophy of tolerance, began to be stretched thin. Uh, They began to see that the claims of Christ were not like the claims of other gods, that you could have many gods. The claims of Christ were to be singularly devoted to him. And Paul's preaching called people to get rid of the other gods and focus on loving and serving and honoring and believing in the one true living God and his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 19, verse 26, Demetrius, who was a silversmith, quotes Paul saying that Paul says that gods made with hands are not gods. Now we today in modern day would laugh at that saying, well, that seems pretty obvious. But to them, it wasn't obvious. And it was creating tension in the city of Ephesus. I also want you uh, to recognize that it was the combination of the message of the gospel coupled with the powerful working of the Holy Spirit that ultimately broke the back of Artemis worship. Today, there is no Artemis, worldwide Artemis worship. There is no temple of Artemis, but the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to be preached and the church of Jesus Christ continues to fill the earth. Praise the Lord. Now, one last thing about this book as a backdrop is that it was written while Paul was in prison. Paul was in his first imprisonment in Rome, we read about that in Acts chapter 28, when he sat down and wrote this book that we call Ephesians. It was, he wrote it as well as three other letters we have in our New Testament, uh, Philippians, Colossians, as well as the book of Philemon. And I mention that because the emphasis that um, this book has on all that God has done for us in Christ really provides us a backdrop for a spiritual battle. Uh, he talks about that spiritual battle in chapter 6 of this, uh, of this book, Uh, But that spiritual battle plays itself out in real life, and it's it's in the experiencing of real suffering. And so uh, I think that's important because in every day, in every generation, in every culture, Christians are to expect that there will be real suffering for following Christ. And so the book of Ephesians helps us to understand how we respond when that happens. So this is a little bit of a backdrop, historical, grammatical, structural, uh, of this wonderful book. And it's all to help you understand that because of God's plan in Christ for you, you belong. Your identity is secure as you trust in Christ. Now, I want us to remind ourselves from this book uh, of why do we belong? Why do we belong? If the theme of, of this is to deal with our identity crisis and to convince us that we belong to Christ, we belong to one another, why is that? What does Paul say in this book that helps us understand that? Well, I want us to look at three reasons today of why we belong. The first is this. We belong because we possess every spiritual blessing through union with Christ. This is what Paul just 
works out in chapter 1 in detail after detail. Let me just, uh, just touch on those, these briefly. As you look at chapter 1, it says, uh, these blessings, uh, it says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. Well, these blessings include past blessings like election and predestination and redemption. These are the things that Paul uh, teases out in Ephesians chapter 1. But they're not only past, they're present. Adoption into the family of God. Forgiveness of sins. Oh, how we need forgiveness of sins. As well as unity with others. And then there are all these blessings are also future. He talks about an inheritance which is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Now these blessings that we have are not received by performance. They're not received like, like the world hands out blessings. You do this, you do this well enough and you'll receive this. That's not the way God hands out his blessings. These blessings are received by being in Christ. By being in Christ. Verses 11 through 13 of chapter 1 are very helpful in this. Let me read them. It says this, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 13 answers these critical questions of how do I, uh, achieve, how do I get and how do I hold on to and keep all these blessings? Well, Paul says it's right here, the first thing is you have to hear the gospel. And then you've got to believe the gospel. It's not, enough, not just enough to hear the gospel. You have to believe the gospel. You have to believe in Christ. And then upon believing, the Holy Spirit seals the believer until the future redemption. That is his inheritance. This is how we get and keep the blessings of God. By hearing the gospel, believing in Christ and then seal, being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we as a church want to continue to do week in and week out. We want to preach the gospel, not only to those who don't know Christ, but to those of us who do. We need to hear the gospel over and over. And then we need to reaffirm our faith in Christ. And then we need to receive the sealing of the Holy Spirit and be filled with his presence as we live out as witnesses in this world. Now, the more I read the book of Ephesians, the more I see how the ministry of the Holy Spirit is highlighted within this book. And so I commend you to maybe even take this afternoon and just read all six chapters of Ephesians. Turn on an audio version and just read it through in one sweep, and you'll see how much the Holy Spirit is highlighted in this great book, how we need the Holy Spirit as we live in this world. Now, the Apostle Paul, knowing how hard it was to conceive that we have everything that God has to bless us in union with Christ simply by believing the gospel, he knows how hard it is to conceive of. People who have lived in outright rebellion and self-righteousness have 
uh, now free gra- through free grace, all of God's blessings. This is mind-blowing. And so we see at the end of chapter 1 that Paul prays for these believers. And he prays that they would know and understand and perceive, really to perceive the magnitude of God's work. And so using, as I use Paul's words, he prays that they would understand and they would know the hope of their calling. That they would know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in them. And that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul's prayer demonstrated that he believed that these wonderful truths can only be comprehended if God intervenes. That they cannot be comprehended by natural means. We need to ask that God would uh, enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would understand and perceive these things. So that's reason number one why you belong here, because you possess every spiritual blessing through union with Christ. The second reason you belong is because God in his love for you has radically rescued you. This, we see this in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. <clears throat> and so I want to pose it to us as we look at the first chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In three questions, Paul unveils a massive shift of who we are because of God's salvation in us. So the first question is this, what have we been saved from? What have we been saved from? Maybe you're out there and you've heard Christians talk about being saved. Well, what does that mean? Being saved from what? That's a great question. Let's look what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were saved from spiritual death because you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Sin kills, but God makes alive. He says also that we are saved from passive conformity. Look what it says in verse 2. It says that we were following the course of this world. Uh, we were following. We were just going after. We were just walking the same path in passive conformity. What everybody else was doing. It was the course laid out for us and everybody else. And we were just marching along that path. doing. We were saved from that. To get off that path. What else were we saved from? Well, in verse 2 it says we were saved from a devilish master. Look what it says. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan was at work in our lives, whether we knew it or not, keeping us blinded in our sin, dead to the things of God, and God in Christ saved us from that. We were saved as well from being enslaved to our emotions. Look what it says in verse 3. It says that we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. People who live simply following their emotions, following their heart, that can be a, a, a horrible way to live and, le- and lead you to some uh, horrible consequences. To be enslaved to our emotions rather than to be an enslaved to a greater, higher principle. That's what God saved us from. And then lastly, we see that we were saved from being under God's judgment. See what it says there in chapter 2, verse 3. It says that we were by nature, being by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
Do you understand that when you were born into this world, you were born in sin and that God's holy wrath rightfully rested upon you? We were saved from that in Christ. That's what we were saved from. Spiritual death, passive conformity, a devilish master, being enslaved to our emotions and being under God's judgment. Well, how have we been saved? That's the second question Paul answers. We, we know what we've been saved from. How were we saved? Well, it says there in verse 5, we were saved because we were made alive together with Christ. When we were united by, with Christ by faith and believing the gospel, we were made alive. Where we were once dead, we are now alive. Hallelujah, we are alive. We are alive to the things of God. We are alive to realities that the physical eye cannot see. How else were we saved? Well, we were saved by grace. By grace we have been saved. Let us read verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Grace means that we didn't do anything to earn it. We could never earn this salvation. We could never clean ourselves up enough. We were saved simply by God's good favor, which He lavished upon us for His own good purposes. Nothing that we did bought Him off or convinced Him. Everything we tried was like filthy rags we told in the book of Isaiah. But by grace we have been saved. And lastly, we are saved how? Because He raised us up and has seated us with Him in heavenly places. Oh, friends, that is our security. We don't have to worry that He's going to reach up and throw us down from our heavenly places. He has secured us by seating us with Christ. Even now, even now, verse 6 tells us, we are seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that's how we've been saved. Well, why have we been saved? Why have we been saved? Well, this word tells us we have been saved so that we might, verse 7, let me read it, so that in the coming ages He, God, might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you know that God wants to continue to show His kindness towards you? He has saved you from the rebellion. It doesn't matter what you've done. Oh, some of us have lived horrible lives. And some of us have lived very churchy lives. And yet we still were dead in our sins. And yet God has saved us, both church, both church man as well as pub man. Both younger brother and older brother. Both horrible sinner and respectable sinner. God has saved us so that He might show His kindness towards us in the coming ages. He saved us in this way also by grace so that none of us can boast. Look at what it says in verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. In heaven, there will be no boasting except boasting in Christ. There won't be anyone saying, oh, I did this and, th this and such for Jesus, and that's why he finally was convinced I was good enough to be here. No, we'll all be, bow our head and say, I was a wretch. 
I didn't realize how much of a wretch I was, but what a Savior Jesus was. Let's boast on Him. And we've been saved this way finally, verse 10, because God has good works that He's prepared already in advance for us to walk in them. Some of those good works we know about, some of those good works we're going to be shown. Are we, church, ready to live out those good works so that the name of our Savior can be lifted high? So those are, that's the second reason. The first reason that we were saved is uh, because you were, I'm sorry, the first reason you belong is because you possess every spiritual blessing through union with Christ. The second is because God in His love has radically rescued you. <clears throat> and then the third reason you belong is because God is creating one church, one church, united together in spite of all our diversity. Now, so far in our study of the book of Ephesians, this is as far as we've gotten. We haven't actually gotten the reason number three, and so I'm just going to take a few moments to uh, uh, sort of tea, put out a little tease, a little promotional commercial here to get us coming back that God is creating this church. Remember in Acts chapter 19, after Paul's first three months in Ephesus where he's preaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath, then he goes to the hall of Tyrannus. And so you've got this believing, this Jesus-believing community, some coming from the Jewish synagogue background, some from this Greek uh, philosophical background, and now they're in the same church. It's a mixture of diverse people with diverse backgrounds, and this was ripe for conflict. It was ripe for controversy. It was ripe for misunderstanding. And so we see here Paul, in starting in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through the end of chapter 3, that Paul is trying to dismantle the natural prejudices and to discuss the nature of what the New Testament people of God are really like. He talks about circumcision and uncircumcision. He talks about the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants and strangers and aliens and dividing walls. And I, I, I just was thinking as I read this that <clears throat> the first time it was read to the church in Ephesus, how uncomfortable it must have been. As he was writing, as this, whoever was reading this to the church was writing or reading Paul's words, how it must have been that they were looking at each other saying, hold it, hold it, hold it. You believe that about me? No. In Jesus Christ, all of this is done away with. That separation is done away with through the cross, we're told in chapter 2, verse 16. He reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There is to be no prejudice within God's church. And though this is a mystery, we as the church need to work this out. Not only a first century problem, it's a 21st century problem. And so we need to continue working that. One of our desires at One City Church is that we would be a diverse community. We would be a church that glorifies God in our diversity. Not in spite of it, in, in our diversity. Because God has created much of the diversity that is so beautiful. And so I want to end this message in thinking, what does Paul say about <clears throat> what is God's purpose 
for all of this. This new thing, this church that God has created in Christ, which includes people from every language and nation and tribe and tongue, that by its very existence is a tension between grace and, and, and cultural differences. How is this to be lived out? And why is it? And the reason is, is so that God can display the purposes of His glorious grace. That, it would, that we would live to the praise of His glorious grace. Chapter 1, verse 12, so that we might be to the praise of His glory. Chapter 1, verse 14, the Holy Spirit guarantees our inheritance until we acquire it to the praise of His glory. Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul prays that we may know what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance. Chapter 2, verse 4, that the foundation of our salvation is God being rich in mercy. Chapter 2, verse 7, that union with Christ now and a future experiences of a, an immeasurable riches of God's grace and His kindness. Friends, this is what it's all about. God's grace. Let me conclude by saying God has invited us into His bounty. From sinner to saint, from enemy to Christian, to children, I mean. Today, if you are in Christ, you have all of God's blessings. But today, if you are not in Christ, I invite you, turn from your sins and embrace the Savior who is able to save us from the deepest of sins. Let's pray. And Father, we ask that you would...